being people. Amen. Professor James K.A. Smith said, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. This morning, we are going to be looking at worship and how that pertains to these 40 days of prayer. And, and what Smith is getting at is that ultimately it's what we worship that defines our wants and our longings and our desires at the core of our identity. This morning, we're going to see, as I know we spent some time at the end of last year looking at some elements of worship, but uh, a very significant passage when it comes to defining worship is found here in John chapter 4, verses 19 to 24, as we look at the interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Where it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You will worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the first thing that Jesus does here is he defines authentic worship. And the the two core elements of authentic worship, the first of which he says true worshipers worship in spirit. It's a Greek word pneuma. It's it refers to several different things from our breath but also to the Holy Spirit, to the spirit as part of our human personality. The seat of our insight, our will, our feelings, our emotions the spiritually disposed part of us, the the spiritual nature of who we are as people. So Jesus says the people who truly worship God, and he's going to get into the, you know, where worship should happen, but beyond all of those things, first of all, is worship that is done in spirit, but also worship that is done in truth. A Greek word, aletheia. It's a word for truthfulness, uprightness, Truth as opposed to lies. Reality as opposed to falsehood. But what do those mean? I mean, it's a great verse. It's a great statement. You know, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. But Jesus, what, what does that even mean? Uh, can we just insert whatever definitions we want? Or does he give some direction? Well, the context helps us understand what it is that Jesus is driving at. In verse 20, it says, our, the, the woman says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so as a Samaritan woman, she is talking about Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan people had their temple where they worshiped God, a temple that was destroyed about 200 years prior to this encounter. And so where she's coming to draw water is a central location of what used to be their center of worship. And so maybe there's a part of this woman that is recalling that worship used to be significant, but now it's been decimated, now it's been destroyed. So why was this their center of worship? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses builds an altar to God here on Mount Gerizim. 
Abraham builds an altar to God on Mount Gerizim. Jacob builds an altar to God on Mount Gerizim. So you can see why the Samaritan people would say, this is where we're to worship. And this is why the woman says, our fathers. So whether you're a Jewish person or a Samaritan, both sides can at least agree that their ancestors from Abraham to Jacob to Moses worshipped on this mountain, just like this woman asserts. In fact, it's not until you get to Samuel and you get to King David that Jerusalem becomes the focal point of worship. And so the Jewish people follow that line. So you can almost begin to see what this woman is getting at and what she's trying to say in this Jewish versus Samaritan battle. Because if you want to be strictly upholding the Jewish Torah, the first five books of the Bible... You could say, well, Scripture clearly says this is the place we're to worship. And so she's making a biblical argument that Mount Gerizim is where true worship is supposed to happen. But, as he says, you Jewish people think that it's Jerusalem where true worship is to take place. So again, our fathers say, but then she says, but you say. Now, this is where English does a disservice. She's not pointing a finger at Jesus, saying, but you personally say this. Uh, in Pittsburgh, if she was a, a Pittsburgher, she would say, yins say that it's Jerusalem. She's using the plural sense of you, that you as Jewish people claim that it's Jerusalem. But notice how Jesus responds to her in verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, he's not doing a mic drop, like, well, yeah, we're just better than you, so pff, take that. The Samaritans were expecting a Messiah, as were the Jewish people. Now, the Jewish people began, kind of forgot a lot of the prophecies about the Messiah, and being the Redeemer and the Savior, and dealing with sin and all of that stuff, and they were just looking for a military conqueror. But for the Samaritans, they were expecting a Messiah who they referred to as Asaif, means he who returns, who was going to be a Moses-like prophet. And so they had a very distorted sense of Messiah. He wasn't going to be this God incarnate to come and, and set people free from sin. He was just going to be a prophet pointing people to God. So the Jewish people, even though their concept of Messiah had been distorted, a lot of the essence of what we understand about who the Messiah was going to be is found in the prophets, which this Samaritan woman, she was discounting the writings of the prophets and holding only to the Torah, those first five books. So a lot of nitty-gritty behind the scenes, but basically Jesus is directing that part of the spirit and truth is connected to their understanding of God and their understanding of how a person is connected to God. Because ultimately it's through him. As Jesus himself said, no one can come to the Father but by me. So true worship needs to happen through Christ, as we'll see in a moment. For the Samaritan woman, it was about a place. It was about a very distorted view of the Messiah who wasn't going to help build a bridge to God. The Messiah was simply going to be a prophet for them. 
So the spirit and true worship, what are the implications for worship in light of the spirit and truth? First of all, worship is Christ-centered. The true Messiah, Christ, who is that mediator between God and man, the one who makes access to God possible. And the woman finally has this moment where she's beginning down this path. In verse 19, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's not going so far as to say that I think you're the Messiah, but she's at least acknowledging there's something about you. Now, if you remember the story, you know how this comes about because she's there drawing water and Jesus says, can I get a drink? And this leads to a conversation about living water. And then he says, go bring your husband. And she's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, right. And the guy that you're with now, he's not your husband either. And he, has, he looks into her soul, and because of this knowledge that can only come from God, she's like, there, there's something about you. Verses 25 and 26, it says, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So basically, she's saying, okay, when the Messiah comes again, this prophet figure, this new Moses, he'll make sense of everything. He'll settle the debate. And Jesus now has the mic drop. It says, I who speak to you am he. I am that Messiah. I am the Messiah that Jewish people and Samaritan people have been waiting for, have been longing for. After this woman has this encounter with Christ, she goes back to her village and begins to tell everybody, about her experience with Jesus. And the people are at least intrigued enough to go to where Jesus is to find out more about him. And after they personally go to Jesus, they come in verse 42 to say, we now know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The woman's testimony leads these people to experience Christ for themselves and conclude for themselves this is indeed the Savior of the world. They have now had their theology transformed to realize that Jesus is the expected Messiah. But notice the language they use. It's no longer the language of a Moses prophet. It's now we know now that you are indeed the Savior of the world that the Jewish concept of the Messiah was correct and that you, Jesus, are that one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For through him, speaking of Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Revelation chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worship that is done in spirit and in truth from the spiritual part of who we are, to truly connect with God, to come in truth to the truth of who God is, it happens through Christ. Christ is the center of that worship. Christ is the focal point of that worship. But not only is it Christ-centered, it's not place-oriented. Worship is not about a place. Again, back to verse 21, when Jesus says, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So again, going back to that debate the woman was having with him, that as Samaritans, we believe that here on Mount Gerizim, this is where we worship. But Yin's Jews think that it's Jerusalem where you're supposed to worship. 
And I love Jesus' response. He's like, they're both wrong. They're both fall short of the truth. Because it says it's not about this mountain or that mountain. It's about spirit and truth worship. Even Jerusalem is not the key. The Samaritans were stuck in the Torah and their understanding. The Jewish people were stuck in the Old Testament. But Jesus offers up this new covenant understanding of worship, which means it's not centralized to a place. Again, for the Jewish people, if you want to meet with God, you go to the temple. It was always about a place, whether it was a tent or the temple. It was always going to where God was. But now through the Holy Spirit, Jesus says that's no longer the case. Now worship happens anywhere. Anywhere that somebody comes to God in spirit and in truth, true worship is taking place. And so it's not about a place. It's said of God, he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands. It's not about a place. It's not about a style. It's not about a tire. Which, by the way, are a lot of things that we put a lot of stock in when it comes to worship. What's, what's the place? Is there a certain place where we worship God? A certain place where, where we truly can worship God? Is it a, a traditional cathedral? Is it more of a laid-back place with chairs? Is it, is it about a style? Is it about organs and choirs? Is it about guitars and drums? Is it about wearing suits and ties? Is it about just wearing whatever you're wearing? And, and we make these the ways that we define worship. Again, how did Jesus identify authentic worship? Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter what the style. Doesn't matter what the attire. Is it in spirit and in truth? But more than that, it demands total surrender. Genuine worship demands total surrender. Verses 28 and 29. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This woman's interaction with Christ, the way that she now approaches worship, the way that she now approaches her understanding of God has been completely transformed. And she's not the same. Again, going back, I'm not trying to pick on different little things, but look at the reality. This woman encounters Christ in spirit and in truth, and her life is changed. Remember, she's an outcast. She's drawing water at the heat of day when nobody else is around because people know her reputation. She avoids the looks. She avoids the whispers. And when all the other women go out to draw water, she's like, I'll wait until they're all done, and then I'll go. This same woman goes back to those people who gossip about her, who give her looks, who judge her for her lifestyle, and she's like, I don't care about that anymore. Laugh at me all you want, whisper about me all you want, but I met this guy, and I think he might be the Messiah. Her life has changed. So the ultimate question, if, if true worship demands total surrender and if true worship results in a changed life, can we understand why God's like, I don't care where you, this happens. I don't care how you're dressed. 
Again, to understand, we tend to spiritualize our traditions. In the New Testament, they met in houses to worship. We didn't develop fancy cathedrals and churches until Rome made it that that's going to be the official religion and now all this money comes into the church and now we build these big fancy buildings. God's not impressed with any of that. People that didn't dress up for church, they just had the same pair of sandals and tunic they wore Monday through Friday. That's how they came to worship together. But then as we have these big fancy buildings, and then all of a sudden it becomes prestigious because if you were rich, you paid money to sit in the front rows. And because you were rich and sitting in the front rows, you dressed all nice, and the poor people in the back had their shabby clothes. And so we all want to look like we have more money than we do, so let's all get dressed up. If you say, well, I want to dress up to honor God, great, do it. I'm not saying, well, you're just trying to show off. Again, understanding that sometimes these traditions develop and we just assume that this is the right way to worship. When it's possible to go to an elaborate cathedral, dressed in your nicest suit, to the most beautifully played organ, to the greatest hymn you've ever sung, and not leave changed. It's possible to gather with a couple people who love Jesus in an alley, strumming a ukulele, and singing whatever song you came up with on the spot, and to have your world turned upside down. Which one is true worship? Jesus says, I want the second one. Because those are true worshipers. I don't want you going through the motions. You can go through the motions to choruses just like you can to hymns. Again, that's why Jesus says it's not about the place. It's not about how you dress. It's not about the style. It's what's happening in your heart. Is your heart being transformed by the presence of God in your life? Are you truly coming before him and declaring his glory and leaving a different person? Going back to James K.A. Smith, the professor said, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retains, retrains our hearts. Is that how we would define our worship of God? Again, I know worship is bigger than music, but I think we could take any discipline and insert that in there. Our church attendance, our singing, our praying, our Bible reading, can we say that those are the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves Those disciplines aren't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Those things are the heart of our discipleship because they form the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. One of my professors, Terry Wardle, who was a part of the Alliance for a long time, talks about their sails on a ship. That's all our disciplines are, their sails on a ship. And you have a ship with big, beautiful sails, it's great, but if there's no wind, those sails are useless. Sails are simply what catches the wind. 
our spiritual disciplines, worship, prayer, Bible reading, going to church, they're simply sails that catch the wind. So if there's no wind, they're pointless. Are the disciplines we have set up in our lives catching the wind of God's Spirit? Are they places where we encounter the presence of God? Are they gymnasiums in which God retrains our hearts? Or are they just going through the motions? Again, we can start every year with the 40 days of prayer. There's nothing magical about that. Uh, 40 days, we see God doing this in Scripture. I don't think there's anything particularly magical about 40 days. But simply having a 40 days of prayer isn't going to change us as a church unless those 40 days become a gymnasium where God retrains our hearts. And unless that turns into day 41 and 42 and 43, all the way to 365, where we are meeting with God in ways where he reshapes us and reforms us. This woman, in just a matter of minutes, is approached by Jesus And she is ready to debate. She's ready to squabble over logistics of worship. And in this one conversation, Jesus completely transforms her understanding and her life. He said, look, I know that the Samaritan temple was destroyed. And the Jewish temple is not going to fare much better. He says, it's not about either one. It's about this. Spirit and truth. Is it Christ-centered? Is it about the heart? Is it about the surrender of a life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We read that probably every year at missions conference. It's a great missions verse. But sometimes if we're not careful, we can make that verse about reaching the nations, period. As if reaching the nations is the goal. Reaching the nations is not the goal. This passage is the goal, and it's not about just reaching the nations. What are the nations doing in this passage? They're worshiping. They're worshiping. That's the goal, to recruit worshipers to the one true God, to recruit people who will fall down at the feet of Jesus and adore him forever about allowing people from every nation, everyone who's ever taken a breath in their lungs to experience the transformation that comes through Jesus Christ. That's the goal. It's not just to notch another one up. We're in another country where we've reached another person. It's about building the choir of worshipers. That's exactly what this woman does. Remember, Jesus doesn't give her an evangelism training seminar. He simply turns her world upside down. And the result of that is that I've I've got to tell people. 
I've got to tell people what I've encountered. And because of that, the people from her village come out and become worshipers too. What what does authentic worship look like for us? What would it look like for us as a church, for us as individuals to engage in authentic, life-changing worship? Worship that is done in spirit and in truth. Worship that changes our lives. That it's not simply about singing songs that we know or singing songs that we love and, and going about our day, but is it about coming before God with every song that we sing to him, every prayer that we pray, every passage that we read from the scriptures, is it about coming before God and saying, in this moment, transform my life. Let this moment be a gymnasium where you retrain my heart, retrain my desires. Again, we open from that quote from Smith who said, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. A lot of times, if we don't like our actions and behaviors, we try to address the actions and behaviors. And we don't do anything about the longings and desires. The way to transform the longings and desires is to retrain your heart. So again, the question is, what would it look like for us to engage in life-changing worship. Worship in spirit and truth where we bring all of all that we are before the fullness of who God is and allow him to have his way among us. Let's pray. Lord, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us individually? What does this mean for us as a community of faith? Where 